Well, today I have with me Hayley Blackman, who is a solicitor working with Legal Aid Gosford. Hayley, thanks for coming on and talking to us about your very interesting role. How, oh, long, how long have you been there uh, with Legal Aid? Uh, look, I've been with Legal Aid since I was trying to think this morning. It's 2008 now, and uh, I've always been in the family law uh, division. Um, and I've also mainly worked from the Central Coast uh, office, but I've, I've had stints in a few of the regional offices as well. Great. T tell me, what was the career path into Legal Aid? Well, um, I actually I came to my law career probably later than um, uh, most. Um, I remember uh, uh, I celebrated my 40th birthday in my first year of practice um, at a very swish law firm that I was uh, lucky enough to be employed at as my first uh, legal job in the city. Uh, they were then known as Blake Dawson Waldron. And uh, I remember as they were throwing all the champagne around, which I wasn't used to at the time, that, um, you know, everybody else was um, a lot younger, the uh, younger associates. <laughs> and it was funny still being called a junior. But um, about a year or so later, I, I then went to legal aid and I felt like I've been in a, my family ever since, actually, because it's such a diverse workforce as well as really important clientele. So... Um, that that age thing hasn't mattered. But look, I didn't actually start uni till I was about 30 and uh, had a baby along the way. So yeah, my first year of practice was my 40th, um, uh, 40th birthday, but I've, I've, um, it's been nothing but positive. I think that's fantastic. And it's interesting, that'll resonate with a lot of our students who are often career changing as well. So you're by no means the Lone Ranger anymore, probably a trailblazer yeah. for many of us. <laughs> so tell me, what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, look, I've, there's probably three things that make up a typical day for me. Uh, one of them is uh, something I'm doing today, which is preparing for a, a big hearing next week. Um, my current role is uh, as a solicitor advocate. So um, I'm working, um, being instructed by the um, family law solicitors from Legal Aid, um, appearing as, I, I think you, it, it's akin to being an in-house counsel, I suppose, um, and uh, preparing for a big hearing starting next week at Newcastle, reading all the material and uh, preparing cross-examination. If I'm not doing that, um, I'm working on, I still run my own small practice in this role. I've got about 10 or 12 matters. So I might be working on those matters, communicating with, setting up meetings with children, talking with report writers, um, talking with other solicitors, keeping my files up to date. Um, or I might be um, attending meetings um, I might be uh, travelling to regional uh, New South Wales. We're, we're back on board with that more and more as we come to the end of this strange two years. We're back in court face-to-face, -face, which is great. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's basically it, but no, no two days are the same. It's very varied by the sounds of things. It sounds great too that you've got the role as a solicitor but also an advocacy mm. role. That's a very unusual dynamic. It is, yes. It's, we're lucky enough to have this as a development um, position. It's available, well, at the moment, it's available um, about every three years. Uh, and it is really a role to see whether you uh, wish to 
take up the challenge of the bar. Um, but it gives you that flexibility so that if, if, it's, if it doesn't work out and that's not the way you want to go, you can slot back into your role as a family law solicitor. It's really um, uh, an ideal way of testing the waters, I suppose, and seeing how you're going. I'm in my third year of that position and it's, it's been terrific. What a great opportunity. Mm. So um, what's the best part of your job and the worst part? I can imagine you would see some horrible things. So what's the best, what's the worst? Yes, well, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, sometimes they're, they're all in the one case. Um, I suppose the best part is when you can really come to the end of a, a trial and feel like you have made a positive difference or something that you've seen <clears throat> in the case or in a person or even in the judge <laughs> has made the difference um, to um, an outcome that is really going to work well or, or, or is going to be the best for those children. We're always working towards trying to get the best outcome for children, but <clears throat> often those outcomes are... Um, uh, the, the best of um, um, the worst sort of uh, options, unfortunately. Um, and the, the worst part of the job, I suppose, is when, when you don't feel that you can make a difference, even given the role that you've got. Um, when things perhaps have gone too far for there to be any um, restoration or, um, you know, when you see children in, um, who've, who've suffered a lot of trauma. That is very difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we've got, you know, that's a common thing at Legal Aid across all of the, the uh, jurisdictions that we deal with uh, in crime and in civil. So we've got, you know, quite a lot of supports and mentoring in place to help us deal with that. Sometimes it's as informal as picking up a phone to your colleague and saying, look, I've had a rotten day and this is all about it. Or it might be, you know, needing something a bit more formal. But but the aim is to try and keep us in our job long-term rather than push us out because of the mm. things that are out there. And, uh, you know, it's not just the lawyers. It's everybody involved in this uh, jurisdiction, mm. um, case workers and uh, counsellors and, and so on, but everybody understands that. And I should say with family law at Legal Aid, of course, that covers the jurisdiction of care and protection as well. Right. In state court, uh, which is a different jurisdiction, some of similar principles, but very different uh, legislative pathways and, and different uh, uh, outcomes, yeah. Well, that's actually answered one of the questions I want to ask you is how, how you self-manage. And obviously you've got to be highly aware of your own capacity, mm. both emotionally and work-wise and take care yeah. of that. Yes, you do. I think you do have to. And that's something that I think being an older um, person coming to this uh, jurisdiction has certainly helped but it's something that I say to the young juniors um, when they're coming through is that look this will get easier uh, it, it doesn't get easier to deal with but it gets easier to deal with yourself I yeah. think. and yeah. um, you you do certainly learn <clears throat> that word resilience is bandied about a lot but if, if it's not resilience it's just an understanding of the things that you need yourself um, that you, you can't you can't be married to the job, um, although you spend more time with the job than you probably do with your, fa with your family at times. But you certainly have to be able to uh, look at self-care and, you know, um, realistically have some great colleagues around you um, to, you know, work, work your way through the difficult times. Yeah, there's some tough days, but there's also yeah. some, some great days. 
I bet there are. Mm -hmm. So you've acted in your role as an independent children's lawyer in family law proceedings. Um, not all of our students will know what that is. So can you just mm -hmm. tell us what that role entails? Yes, sure. An independent children's lawyer, um, it's, uh, uh, they're, they're a party appointed by the judge. It's a discretionary appointment by a judge in family law proceedings. Um, they're appointed um, where there are factors in family law matters um, that might call for that independent position. It's, it's, not, it's not a position where you're acting for a child on direct instruction. Um, you're act, it's a best interests acting. Um, so your client is not actually the child. Um, it, it's, a, it's an odd sort of position, although you're, um, you're, you're talking to a child and wanting to know what their views are, those views are not determinative of the outcome of the case. Mm -hmm. But uh, your role is really to, a um, couple of things, I suppose, to be a conduit between the child and the court and the judge, and, and um, to, your duty is to be able to get the children's views in, in some sort of admissible form before the judge and the parties. Um, and it's also to ensure you become a sort of a case manager. It's also to ensure that the evidence is appropriate, relevant, uh, that all of the compelling evidence is is uh, before the court at, by the time the trial comes along. So you're a bit of a, a school mom as well with the other parties, particularly if they're self-represented, you find yourself um, having to do much of the casework in getting things to trial. It, it's a really varied role. It's, it's, a, um, it's a role for senior family lawyers and in, at legal aid, uh, you're not permitted to train for that role until you've been practicing as a family lawyer for about five or six years right um and and sometimes uh, as a senior lawyer you end up with most of your practice being an ICL practice um but the practices um, vary there's a case uh, full court case reek hay which sets out 13 principles of right um the reasons why an independent children's lawyer might be suitable in a particular case. That's a 1994 case. Right. Um, so the listeners might be able to have a look at that. It's quite well known. No, thank you. That was actually my next question. What sorts of matters? So I guess it depends on the indicia of the particular case as to it, whether it's required. It does. But look, the main ones, I would say the main reasons are where there are, um, uh, I've, I've sort of had a look at those principles this morning and I think the main ones would be where they say there's an intractable conflict between the parents and that's a funny thing because really they're in court anyway so yeah I would have thought that was most family law matters <laughs> but, but it is you can actually distinguish between an intractable conflict and, a, and an ordinary conflict um funny right um, okay what some of the main things is where there are fat where there is family violence where there's a lot of disputed right. allegations where there needs to be a lot of evidence digging and hunting uh, that's when your sort of forensic cap goes on you're trying to look for well where is the evidence of these allegations can we find them for the judge um, there, there it's also where there might be one or more of the parties have got some fairly um, uh, uh, serious psychological or psychiatric issues that might need for example you might need to coordinate an expert report and um, that needs someone doing that um, out of all of the parties. And it's always the independent children's lawyer who gets that, that duty. 
uh, you may need to be ringing around and trying to find the right expert for the job. You might be trying to find money to pay for the expert reports, but now they're up towards $25,000. Um, oh, good grief. Incredibly difficult to try and get um, you know, appropriate funding or to, to ask parents to pay for that. So that's another sort of uh, role. Um, and it's also um, where both of the parties are self-represented. It is usual then for the judge to say, well, I'm going to have to have a solicitor involved in this and it's mm. going to be an independent children's lawyer. Mm, um, it's quite an well important all, role. Yes, it is. It really is. And, and look, in all of that, of course, the most important part of it is your uh, communication with the children themselves and mm. dealing with that in an age-appropriate way, uh, dealing with sp split siblings between, you know, there might be a large family that is split amongst different people. It's, it's a real juggling act, yeah. It certainly sounds like it. So who pays the costs of the independent children's lawyers' representation? Where does that mm. come from? It comes from the uh, initially from the legal aid bodies in any particular state. So they will run the scheme of allocation and find um, independent, suitable independent children's lawyer either from within the legal aid body itself, like someone like me, or from a um, pool of private solicitors who have done the training and put their hand up to do this difficult work for not a great deal of um, uh, recompense um, would be equivalent to a grant of, you know, legal aid for, for a party. It's, it's, um, it, it can feel like um, difficult work to do for not very much money. Um, and then it's, it's a requirement for us to seek, try to get those, that funding back in a cost order from the parties if, if it appears that they can pay. Um, right. Often the case is they can't, they're, they're legally aided themselves, um, or they're in that huge uh, group of people who, although they work, they couldn't possibly afford uh, legal, mm. uh, legal costs. So usually it is the legal aid body itself who will mm. um, fund most of it. I don't know what the percentages are, but a huge percentage is, is just funded by legal aid. Yeah, it's fascinating. So the child is not your client, or they sort of are, but sort of aren't. Um, are you required to follow the child's instructions or how does that work? Yes, no, no, we're not. Um, and we're required to actually tell the child that in a way that they can understand. So with, all, with the age groups, uh, you know, from babies to, to 17 years old, you can see how varied it is in trying to explain to children different things but it's your duty to to try and explain to them as much as you can um, what we explain to children is that we want to hear what your views are um, depending on what the case is about um, uh, but you don't have to tell me if you don't want to but if you do want to tell me and then you want me to go and tell the judge and your parents I'm happy to do that as well because they might feel it's important to know what you want um, because that might, that might um, have a role in them making a decision about what's best for you. Mm. So essentially it's, that's what we call a best interest jurisdiction. Mm. We're required to use our best professional skill and judgment and training to put a proposal forward to the court that we think is in a child's best interest. 
sometimes it's a line ball, uh, but, but we're still required to put what we think is the best proposal forward so that the court can consider that. And we argue as if we're a party. So often we're at the tail end of the, the judge's rage about you know, particular positions that we're putting as much as a parent is. But it, it's, it's a frank and fearless representation as it always is in, in uh, these advocate sort of roles. Um, so what we say to the child is, it's going to be important for the judge to know, but the judge will make the decision in the end, not you. Mm. And, and that's often in particular case um, makes a child happy because mm. they don't have to make the decision um, about, you know, between their warring parents. It's sort mm. of left, let go, and they can breathe a, a bit of relief that um, someone else is going to make the decision about this. Mm, that's a, a good way of looking at it. Yeah. It's, it's different in the care and protection jurisdiction, though, where it is direct instruction when a child turns 12. Right. Okay. That um, must well, be very difficult to discern whether you're getting competent instructions, for example. Yes. And if you're not getting competent instructions, then it's your duty to let the court know. Um, right. And, and then the court might make a decision at that time that, uh, it will not be direct representation if a child is not competent to give those instructions. Mm. Um, but you might, dis in the care and protection jurisdiction, you might disagree with, with a child's views about with whom they might live, um, but you're still required, as if you were representing an adult, to advocate for that position. It's a fascinating role. Are, th are there times do you find that your duty to the court overrides the duty to the client or to the child? Yes, definitely. And um, there's been several times um, in my career where I've had to withdraw from acting for an adult uh, party uh, because of that conflict. Mm. But um, the, the main rule um, in the solicitor's conduct rules is Rule 19, uh, which is about frankness in court. It's a really expansive rule and uh, I try to make it a habit of reading it about once a year <laughs> to remind myself about my duties to the court because um, it, it can get swallowed up in, in high conflict matters. Um, but one of the main conflict areas in this with family law is where a, a client... Um, may tell you something that you know is going to be really important and relevant, um, a relevant fact for the court's determination. But they say, I, I don't want you to put, I don't want the court to know. Mm. Um, now, um, this, this could involve a whole range of um, grey or outright breaches of the rules under the frankness in court. So I'd encourage uh, any aspiring um, solicitor to go and have a look at those conduct rules in particular, that Rule 19. Um, but in, in my case, where I've had to actually withdraw from a client where something like that's happened, a um, particular example I remember is um, a matter was reserved for judgment. So we'd had the trial and the matter was reserved for judgment. Um, um, it had been a couple of months and we still hadn't had judgment and my client had gone on to commit a further um, very serious assault on a new partner um, and it was, was in jail. 
and he didn't want me to um, advise the court about this. Mm -hmm. But my duty as a family lawyer is there are duties in the Family Law Act in relation to uh, the disclosure of family violence um, offences uh, because that has a very direct bearing on uh, the, the issues concerning children. Um, but also I had the conundrum of, it, well, we're reserved for judgment, evidence has closed. What does that mean? Um, and I was still very junior, so it involved a lot of discussion with my senior colleagues. And in the end, I had to say to him, if you, you, you need to instruct me to ask the court to um, uh, relist the matter, reopen the evidence, and to um, depose an affidavit about uh, where you find yourself, that you've, that you've been charged with an offence and you're, you're on um, remand. And if you don't do that, I will have to withdraw from the case because that's a direct breach of my conflict to the court. Mm. Um, and, and he, after some thought, he decided um, that he would um, give me those instructions because he, he did want to keep me as his solicitor um, and not have to deal with a new solicitor, which is what would have had to have happened. I would have had to withdraw um, quietly and um, he would have lost his grant of legal aid because, um, you know, he wasn't following instructions um, and he would have had to deal with a private solicitor or represent himself. Um, but there's been other occasions where clients have said, no, I'm not, I'm not giving you those instructions or I'm not giving you the instructions you're advising me to and I've had to withdraw. So it's happened a handful of times, definitely. Hmm. And I've discovered that the, the best way to avoid all of that is to tell your clients up front from the very first interview, this is what I expect from you because these are my duties. Yep. Yeah, you know, and if they understand, then you don't get into those difficult situations as often. Um, but I think there's in the world we live in now, particularly with no, a lot of interviews taking place over the phone and mm. over video, a lot of those details are are being lost, and so um, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of litigants out there saying I didn't know that, nobody told me that, you know. Um, um, because we're, we're losing some of those details. So it's always, always important to give your clients right from the beginning the expectation, this is what I expect from you and this is what you'll get from me. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and the irony is only this week in legal ethics, we talked about a fake scenario very similar to what oh, you've really? just discussed. So it's, it's right. lovely to act, well, it's not lovely, but I, I guess it's very encouraging to hear that this is the stuff that you really do have to grapple with, mm. that duty of confidentiality to the client versus the paramount duty to the court. That's right, what yeah. that looks like at the coalface, which you have illustrated so beautifully for us today. Mm. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if he had have said no, um, you, I don't want them to know, then yes, I, I would have just had to quietly withdraw. And that would balance my duties. Yes. Um, and that's exactly, you know, what I would have had to have done. There's, there's lots of other examples and they're always so varied. But, yeah, that, that, that Rule 19 is a good one to start with. Mm. Well, Hayley, thank you so much for your time and for bringing to life for us a, a fascinating area of law and something that actually 
we feel very passionate about, and that is the giving back that you do, obviously, every day in your job. So thank you. It's been a real delight to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome. I wish everyone the best of luck. It's a, it's a fantastic career um, choice if, if anyone wants to become a family lawyer. It's really dynamic at the moment. Lots of changes going on and a great thing for young people to get their teeth into. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Hayley. Thanks.